Think about how many thousands of people you've met in your lifetime. How many are acquaintances? How many are friends? How well do you know any of them? I'm your host, Steve Waxman, and I want to get to know people a little bit better. I want to find out about the journey they've taken in their lives to get to where they are today. These are my conversations with human beings. There's this old cliche that we all have a book inside of us. Well, hockey author and my best friend, Kevin Shea, has had 20 books inside of him with more to come. And it all started with an undying love for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Grew up in Windsor, lovely family, um, middle-class family in a place called Riverside, Ontario, which was a, a suburb of Windsor. Really nice little community and quiet and nice. And, and uh, you know, like every boy of my age at that time, we all played hockey, whether it was on the street or you registered for Riverside Minor Hockey Association, and I did that. And I was crazy about hockey from the beginning, crazy about hockey. My dad was a big hockey fan. One of the, the great delights of my life when I think about my dad was sitting on that couch watching Hockey Night in Canada every single Saturday night. And uh, mom would be downstairs ironing, of all things. I don't know why she was ironing on a Saturday night, but she uh, she warned us that if there was a fight, we were to call her immediately. So, and sure enough, that was the era too. And we, Dale and I, my brother Dale, would, would, I, would scream down the stairs, fight, fight, fight! And she'd come running up the stairs as fast as she could. But of course, the fight was over by that time but they were doing the replays and she'd be there and, oh my God, they've started again. Well, no, no, mom, that's the replay. Oh, never mind. You know, and so she, uh, she was heavily involved in the whole hockey thing too, although on a peripheral basis. But, uh, but yeah, memories of, of my dad, who was a big Leaf fan and my brother and I, Dale, not quite so much a Leaf fan, but a big hockey fan as well. And, uh, and doing that every single Saturday night in, in Riverside, Ontario. Before we go on, I have a confession to make. My guest today, Kevin Shea, was the best man at my wedding. And for as long as I've known Kevin, I've never asked him where his love for writing actually began. Oh boy, that's a great question. When I was a kid, I always loved the hockey news and People magazine and stuff like that. I guess I was a teenager then and, and thought, wouldn't it be cool to write for one of those? So I was in a creative writing course in university, first year university, and things are going going fairly well. Our first assignment is, here's a picture of a river with a willow tree. Write a lovely essay about that. So I put it together and it was okay. And I think I got a C. Fair enough. And uh, the next one was, write about something that you're really passionate about. So I wrote about radio. I wrote about a radio station that I grew up with called CKLW. And I wrote and I, and I nailed it. And I came back and I failed. I said, wait a minute, so I talked to the TA, the teaching assistant, and the professor, and why would I fail? They said, there's no way that the person who wrote this essay is the same one who wrote the one about the willow tree. I said, but it was. Believe me, the willow tree I had no attachment to. There was no passion there. I just wrote, this one I was passionate about. This is something I really believe and I love. So they, uh, I, I mean, at the time, you couldn't do a whole lot of, of uh, source checking, but they accepted my story and gave me the, the A that I felt I deserved anyway. So shortly thereafter, we had to interview somebody and, and, uh, and submit it. So everybody was going after rock stars or, or whatever. And I thought there was a local story in Windsor where I grew up about uh, the local bozo retiring, bozo the clown retiring, a guy named Art Servi. So I thought I'll interview bozo. 
and find out about it. So I interviewed this this uh, art survey at the TV station and good interview, went well and, and wrote it up and submitted it and did well on it. And the course was over, finished and got my mark and whatever it was, 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 was quite good. But then all of a sudden I got a, a package in the mail and there were a couple of magazines in it and I thought, well, this is weird, Windsor This Month magazine, Bye Bye Bozo, the story of the professor had submitted my story to this local uh, monthly magazine and attached to the two magazines was a check for $50. And I thought, now this is cool. <laughs> so, so for years, even though I was working in radio, you know, after university, I worked in radio for a number of years, but I was also always the local disc jockey who wrote the music column for the, the weekly papers or the daily papers or whatever. And I always thought that was fun, but never thought beyond that. I thought I've reached the, the zenith of my writing career. You know, it's, it's funny. I remember that you used to always be collecting old newspaper clippings saying that one day maybe you were going to write something. So you remember there was that one Christmas in 99 that we gifted you with a box of floppy disks and a ream of blank paper. And, and uh, I think it was a book called Publishing for Dummies. That was our way of finally forcing your hand to start writing. I can remember you so clearly saying to me, Kevin, we've heard your stories all along. You're going to write a book. And I thought, I can't write a book. I can't, I can't even can't dream of writing a book, but you set me on my path. And sure enough, by that July, June, I guess it was, I had my first, uh, first contract for my first book. That was a fluke too, but I was in the right place at the right time and, and uh, had my first book out the following October. Before you get too far ahead of yourself, let's talk about how you got the book deal. So I can recall you and I going to, I think I've got this right, if I have it, please correct me. Going to a bookstore that was just north of Bloor on uh, Young Street. Long forgotten now. It be, it's now a Starbucks, I believe. Wish I could remember it. But there were there was a nice bookstore. And going through, trying to find publishers' names. Because mm -hmm. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But I thought, after getting the impetus from you guys, I thought, okay, the story that I want to write is about a family of, of uh, Chinese immigrants to Canada and they had 10 children in the family, and, uh, and they all went on to these wonderful professional careers, but three of the boys got invited to the Toronto Maple Leafs training camp in 1944. So I'd fallen into this, doing this collection, as we talked about earlier, this collection of information and newspaper clippings. I had fallen into this story and thought, wait a minute, here are these three Chinese boys, 14, 15, and 16 years of age, invited to training camp with the Leafs in Owen Sound in 1944, phenomenal story. So I dug into it more and found out that these were the Gordy, well, better the Wayne Gretzky's, I guess, of, of their era. Their team would win 28 to 3 every game and the three boys would uh, would collaborate on 27 of the 28 goals. And So they get invited to the, the Maple Leaf training camp. In retrospect, I wonder if it wasn't a publicity stunt to some degree. Um, local kids invited to training camp, you know, uh, the, the whole rags to riches story that was behind it. Nevertheless, they played and did pretty well. They didn't make the team, but they did pretty well during this training camp and playing in what are called blue and white games. Just the, the team splitting in half and half wearing white sweaters and, and uh, the other half wearing blue sweaters and they raised money for charity. So they played at Maple Leaf Gardens and the Chinese community came out in droves, probably never having been to a hockey game before, but they wanted to see their own and the boys did well. They were they were really tiny. I mean, they were tiny. The, the biggest one, I think, was 5'6". 
And they're playing against guys like Babe Pratt, who's in the Hockey Hall of Fame, who was the biggest guy in the league at the time. He was 6'2 and 220 pounds or something like that. And anyway, the boys did well, scored a couple goals, got body checked, one got a cut, but they got their names in the newspapers and they were heroes. And so I drafted a chapter, a sample chapter and an outline, and I sent it off to every publisher that I could find that you helped me find. And rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter, or silence. And out of the blue came one, a company called HB Fenn, based in Bolton, Ontario. And I got a letter, and uh, and it said, uh, uh, we, we love your passion, we love your writing, we don't like your story, but it, we think you'd be good for a story that we've contracted and we need an author for. Would you have lunch with us? Love to, so... I was working at a record company at the time, and there was a, a billiard hall around the corner. So we met there for lunch, and in walked the publisher, looking dapper in his suit, and with him is a, a gentleman quite disfigured. Um, but I knew right away who it was, and we sat down, and just as we sat down, the owner's dog, his bulldog, came over and went to the bathroom on the publisher's foot. <laughs> so I thought, oh good, here we go. I hope it's not an omen of things to come. Anyway... Uh, we talked a little bit of small talk, and then they started to pepper me with questions about the Toronto Maple Leafs, something that I was fairly well versed in. I knew that the gentleman who was asking the questions, although he hadn't identified himself, but I knew he was a gentleman named Tommy Smythe, who was the son of Stafford Smythe, who owned the team with Harold Ballard in the late, uh, well, through the 60s and into the early 70s, and the grandson of Con Smythe, who had owned the team from its inception in 1927. So I knew where we were headed with this, and I recognized him, and I knew that he had gone through some uh, some terrible uh, cancer operations for for uh, ca uh, cancer of the tonsils, which is really rare, and so that's why his jaw was quite uh, quite disfigured, and he only had uh, had he only had one ear at that point; the other one had been uh, had had to be removed and moved and it was really a sad story but anyway he asked me questions about his family and I was able to answer the questions and quite readily and uh, so Tom turned to Jordan the publisher and said he's our guy and I got my book deal it was June at that point and they said okay can you write a book in a month and I said yeah sure of course I had no idea but I of course yeah you have to remember that I was working full-time as well and so here I am accepting a job that I didn't even know anything about, working nine to five or six or whatever, depending on the day, and uh, then going home and working as as long as I can, keep my eyes open, and then having to get up for work first thing in the morning, and then you know six in the morning till two in the morning on Saturdays and Sundays, but I got it done. Got the book done, got submitted, and it was, the, it was a book called Center Ice, and it was the story of the Smythe family and their ties to hockey. So that was my first deal. I subsequently, decades later, found out that I was about the sixth person to be asked to write the book. The others had started to work with Tom and found him too difficult to deal with, too too slow to deal with, just not their thing, so they had backed out. Big names. Scott Young was one of them, for example, and Scott Young, Neil Young's dad, who was a, a celebrated writer about hockey. Anyway, I, so they were desperate, clearly, and they just found, found a, a resume and a guy who liked hockey and figured, good enough, I'm sure, but somehow I got the job and that set me on the path. So once you signed off on the book deal, how did you get started? A ton of research, and that's exactly what I do with all the books. A ton of research 
in advance to make sure that I'm, I'm well-versed. You know, I'm a, an okay writer. I'm not a great writer. I'm an okay writer. I think I'm, I think I'm good, but I'm a storyteller. So I had to speak to as many people as I could to get the Smythe story from their perspective, which helped with their color in the book, but also in questions to ask Tom when I interviewed him. So that was good. So I talked to, I mean, you name it, and I spoke to them. But guys who had played on the Leafs or the Marlies, Tom Smythe had been the general manager of the Toronto Marlboros at the time as well. So I spoke to a number of hockey players that I had kind of tangential connection to and uh, people connected with the family and the boss at Attic Records where I worked at the time by fluke had lived down the street from Con Smythe in Baby Point, and, uh, and so he put me together with some neighbors who knew the Smythe family fairly well. You're, it's amazing how things fall into your lap sometimes. And so I did all of this research, and as I was talking to people, the genesis of where the book was going to go started to form. And that's uh, the way it went. Then I started to talk to Tom. I realized he was very, very slow. Usually I can, I figure a good interview, for me anyway, uh, is about 45 minutes and then people either get tired or bored or whatever. So I try and keep it at that. But with Tom, he was, he was about 15 minutes in and that's all you can get. And you can't get a whole lot in 15 minutes. And because of his health concerns, it was, it was often interrupted by doctor's appointments, the regular visits, I mean, doctor's appointments or whatever. And he was also a real estate agent, so he had a business to conduct. So it was slow and methodical, but I realized that, okay, I've got to, to, instead of staggering the interviews once a week or whatever, it had to be every second day and that helped speed things up. But just hearing Tom's stories, and then all of a sudden you'd get a gem, a gem of a story and you realize, oh my God, that's what's going to start this, uh, this book off. Uh, it's not what I had originally intended. Um, or, you know, I got into some areas with his father who had gotten into some major, major trouble. Um, um, he was supposed to be jailed, and I ran into some real trouble there where Tom told a story, but everybody else who told the story had a different story. And I could tell that Tom was protecting his dad and his family to some degree, or that's what he believed, I'm not sure. So then you run into the dilemma of, what do I do here? Well... The story is told through Tom's voice, so I had to temper that. It still had to be Tom's voice, so I couldn't change the fact that, you know, Tom contended that uh, Harold Ballard had changed the will, his father's will, on his deathbed and things of that sort. I found out that that probably was not true. Legally, it couldn't have been true, and there were a number of things that uh, played into that, but... Um, I just had to temper Tom's story so that it still was his story, but I couldn't be quite as, as blatant about the uh, the timeline as he and the and the facts as he was. Everything else was pretty much exact from Tom's side of things and the uh, the facts that everybody else gave me. So what do you do next? Yeah, so I was transcribing the interviews as I went and then starting to build a bit of a a template for where I wanted it to go, and it started to fall together fairly nicely at that time. It wasn't the way it ended up. I find that with a lot of books too, but at least it gave me a, a bit of a, an idea where to head and how to go. And I tried to find that gem of a story to, to start things off and, and the, uh, the closing chapter as well. So it all kind of came together, but that month, <laughs> that month went by very quickly and I was writing to the very last minute before I submitted my manuscript. So what was it like when you got to hold the book for the very first time? So the book came out in October of 2000, and oh, I'm so proud. You know, here I, the book looked beautiful, and there's, I got Wayne Gretzky to write the foreword. So there's, 
you know, the Shea name with Gretzky and Smythe names, two of the legends of uh, legendary names of hockey, was beyond belief. It looked good. It felt good. The the cover was special. Inside, the they used blue ink to print it. it. Blew me away. And then I started to read, and I was between furious and despondent because I noticed all kinds of mistakes. And I thought, there's no way, you know, Jean Beliveau became John, J-O-H-N, Beliveau, rather than J-E-A-N. I thought, there's no way. I know better than that. I went back to my manuscript, and sure enough, I didn't have that. I kept going on. Uh, Tom's best friend was a guy named Doug, but in the book it became Dog, D-O-G. Um, the J.P. Bickle Award, which is awarded rarely, but is awarded to a special LEAF personnel for contributions to the organization, became not the J.P. Bickle Award, but the J.P. Pickle Award. So I, I called the publisher at 11 o'clock or midnight or whatever it was that night and, and said, you, you got to stop the presses. You got to stop. The book has got a ton of errors in it. He said, Kevin, it's too late. It's in the stores. You know, they're going to uh, put it on the shelves tomorrow. I said, but Jordan, it's got all these errors in it. He said, well, I don't know. Well, don't worry about it, Kevin. We'll fix it in the second printing. Well, they printed a ton of copies, a ton of copies. I mean, a best-selling Canadian hockey book is 5,000 copies. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to reach it with virtually every book, but, um, but it doesn't seem like a lot of copies. He printed, I think it was 16,000 copies which would be in, in music lexicon, would be triple platinum plus. You know? and, it, and slowly, through time, it did sell them all, so it was a tremendous seller, but we never did get to that second printing because he printed so many off, off the hop. So that was a concern. I find out weeks later that, in fact, it was too late for him to have an editor, a copy editor, to go through the book, so he did it himself and used spell check as much as possible and just accepted some of the... Uh, the things and mistakenly had Doug become dog and pickle become or Bickle become pickle and things of that sort. So I'm very proud of my first book ever. It's the very first one, but I'm not proud of what was between the covers because of what happened there. Um, all of the reviews, we didn't have that many, but the reviews that we had almost all said a terrific story. Too bad this guy can't write or too bad this guy didn't do a little uh, proofreading before he submitted it. It's like, oh, guys, it wasn't me. But anyway, <laughs> what can you do? Yeah. Have you come up with any kind of shortcuts or tricks to make the process of writing a little bit easier in your subsequent books? No, but but there's a, there's a stereotypical Kevin Shea uh, template, I think. I try and find that dynamite story. I mean, it's no different than a, a record. You want to hook the people right away, a song, I mean, or, uh, or a movie. Uh, you know, the trailer has got to, to, uh, to fuel some interest there. I try and do the same thing. So I try and find a dynamic story. Maybe not the most dynamic story, but a dynamic story that will open the book. And it, it doesn't have to be from the beginning, in fact, it usually is not at the, from the beginning of a person's career, so it's not chronological in any way, but it's kind of a standalone one to grab the reader's interest and go, ooh, I want to continue on. Then I go back and do things. I've tried to be artistic and play with back and forth with time frames and stuff, and I just find as a reader that, you know, it's much easier to understand when it's chronological, and I find that that works for me, although I try and play with other things as well. So it's the big dynamic beginning, 
the chronological story and then a dynamic close or some kind of a, a close that leaves people satisfied with this person or, or the story's, this person's career or that particular story. So now that you have the relative luxury of time to write, are there still challenges that you need to deal with? So there's two things to remember here. So first, I have to thank my partner, Nancy, who, you know, who has been sensational through this whole thing. I think she realized fairly quickly. It was a bit of a pain for her at the beginning because I had to head downstairs and, you know, we'd, she'd uh, make dinner because I, I didn't get home until about 7 o'clock. So dinner was ready when I came home. Blessed for that. And then we'd watch Jeopardy and and I had to head downstairs and I'd be there until it was time to go to sleep. And so... You know, I would try and make sure that we had a date night. I, I tried to make sure that I treated her as a partner should be treated. There were lots of flowers and treats and things of that sort, but uh, she was really understanding more as we went on when it got, okay, I get it now. That's Kevin's happy spot. But the other thing to remember too is how, how challenging it was. If it was, just, if it was just writing books, that's a challenge. But I was manning full-time jobs and busy full-time jobs at the same time up until recently was whether it was the Hockey Hall of Fame or after that it was the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation and uh, and so these were busy re important jobs with lots of responsibilities and then I had to go home and research and write and all those sorts of things so it was incredibly demanding I don't know how I did it sometimes but I always did I never missed a deadline we got the books out, and they and I was very proud of them all, with the exception of that first one that I talked about. Uh, very proud of them all. They all did very, very well. And uh, and if I was writing about somebody, they were very pleased with what the final product was too, and that was the most important thing, candidly. So yeah, it worked out all well. All right. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin. You can find out more about the books he's written by logging into kevinshayhockey.com. And before you leave please follow or subscribe to Human Being for more conversations.